that's where from the charities I'm always saying you don't have to wait till everything's perfect for you to get started start small take baby steps do that incremental improvements whilst you are looking at that direction of travel using the strategy as well welcome to episode one of season four of starts at the top our podcast about leadership digital culture and change i'm zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we speak to Ursula Dalton, Chief Technology Officer of the British Heart Foundation, about the importance of data and digital transformation projects, personalisation and about building confident, strong relationships with suppliers. But it's been a while since our last episode back in July and summer holidays feel like a distant dream. So Zoe, how are you and what have you been up to? Oh, thanks, Paul. Yes, goodness me, doesn't the summer feel like a long time ago already? Yeah, I had a lovely summer holiday, lots of going to gigs, went to some festivals, which is very nice. Made a uh, trip to Hampshire, Lymington, which was very lovely. Uh, But I think we're all back to the grindstone now, aren't we? And uh, doing some really exciting stuff. And obviously, there have been a few changes as well. So some people will have seen our announcement about Social CEO Awards, how we're putting that to bed Although we are planning a special episode based around some of the kind of key things in social CEOs later in this season, looking at which leaders, both in and outside the charity sector, are doing great stuff on social media, using social media for social good, effectively. And what have you been up to, Paul? Oh, Lots. Yeah, I went on holiday. It does seem like a distant dream. Anglesey, which was lovely. Um, Nice. Snowdonia, a lovely part of the world. We'll be going back. Lots of food and and, uh, lots of summer garden activity, gardening and all that sort of stuff. I guess the other big thing in my life, as you know, we we talk about it regularly and you're constantly asking me questions about football. Um, I got back into the Arsenal stadium, so back to supporting football, back to full stadiums of people. I have to admit that 60,000 people was a bit odd to suddenly surround yourself with, especially at the end of the game when everyone was piling out. And I thought, well, I haven't been this close to anyone uh, for <laughs> about 18 months and, and you know, got a bit claustrophobic and wanted to, to jump out the stadium but other than that it's all been all been good <laughs> um we've been talking quite a lot you and I over the last few weeks about hybrid working uh, and how some of our clients and organizations we're speaking to across different sectors are tackling that what trends are you seeing in that area well I think you know everyone's trying to to get back I think there's some there's some interesting conversations emerging around how different organizations are approaching not being vaccinated and how how that works in in offices I think I've found that the the meetings that I've gone to have been interesting where I have perhaps done a lateral flow test the night before going into a meeting room, for example, and sent ahead an email saying, tested last night, I'm fine, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And um, not always getting that back from the people that I'm meeting. So I think there's uh, some some sort of odd protocols around what to do and what not to do. But I think the, the biggest thing that I'm seeing now or hearing about now is just the, the differences there between different organisations doing that in slightly different ways and you know how they start to to treat or how they start to work or how they start to allow people that haven't been vaccinated back into offices. I heard an example this morning, uh, I think, of a, 
was it a university or something i i heard a, an example sorry i should know the, the example before i cite it but there was an example of an organization that said that they weren't going to let people that hadn't been double vaccinated back into the office for the time being until they could figure out a way forward so i think that's that's going to be interesting I do know someone who works in a brain injury unit who works on the sort of psychologist side of things who were saying that they have uh, a very strict guidance from their employer that you do need to be vaccinated in order to, to do the job. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how people tackle that and put rules around that in place and also legally what they can and, and can't do. Uh, and what are you seeing among the people that you're talking to, Paul, about how people are finding hybrids? I think it's a mixed bag, really. Um, a lot of the day-to-day people I work with find it much easier to to manage their workflow by being at home. That sort of work-life balance typically is is much better. I think people are finding ways now to to sort of down tools at the right time of the day. Uh, I know I find that quite hard walking away from the laptop or shutting down the laptop and moving away from the office because it, the office happens to be our conservatory you can't act, you can't sort of leave it um <laughs> I, and I, I i understand and i've seen a there was an article this week that we should try and share in the show, show notes as well but there was an article this week and i've i've definitely heard this that i think some people are missing the commute not necessarily the working in the office so it's that separation time it's that downtime to sit on a train or in a car and move from place to place. I think that is something that seems to be missing from people's days. Yeah, obviously, there have been some developments in this area as ever, which I think have caught our eye. Uh, So one of the big things is obviously that Boris Johnson at the Conservative Party conference was talking about working from home. We have obviously had government commenting on working from home before, but it was interesting to see Boris Johnson saying that uh, he thought young workers should return to the office or they would risk colleagues gossiping about them or they might lose out on things as well. And in fact, uh, there was even a former cabinet minister, Jake Berry, who in one of the fringe events at the conference decided to uh, rename wo- uh, working from home, woking from home. So make of that what she will. So it's interesting because this is, again, another example of where government is saying one thing and business seems to be doing something different. It's so unhelpful, isn't it? It's um, the, the the I know the headlines focus on the the sort of oh they're going to gossip about you behind your backs, but I you know I think the only thing that I had any sympathy with in all of that was the the sort of the opportunities for younger people who are starting on the career ladder to learn and to spend time with colleagues to sort of learn the trade. I guess was, was the thing I took away from that, but obviously it focuses on the negative connotations. The truth of the matter is, I don't really think that anyone wants to hear from. Boris Johnson about this stuff what they want to hear is different organizations and how they're approaching things so yeah it's a little bit unhelpful there's also stuff in this article looking at it which I don't think I agree with so there's some stuff here about uh, remote working means that your network can shrink research has shown that during the pandemic professional and personal networks are like shrunk by 16 percent mm. 
I'm surprised by that because if anything, I feel like I've been talking to people more, albeit online. Wayne Murray, who I know listens to this podcast, bless him, and uh, many of you will know who work in the charity sector, he did this great thing during the pandemic where he's been having coffees with people on Zoom all through the last 18 months, which I think is wonderful. So I'm sure his network is great, which is great. But I'm surprised to read this, this finding. I suppose if you are in that position, then you've got to think of some different ways to, to network. And it's so easy to do that on social media. Yeah, hard agree. I think I've had more conversations, more access to people, more opportunities because of social networking and particularly LinkedIn for me at this moment in time have really opened up a lot of discussions with audiences and with people that I wouldn't have spoken to before and also reconnected me with people that I used to work with who suddenly sort of come out of the woodwork and said, oh, I didn't know you did that, Paul. Can you come and talk to us about it? So there's a real opportunity, I think, to, to sort of address uh, address that side of things at the moment. So no, I'd, I'd, I'd hardly agree with you. I don't agree with that. Anyway, Facebook. Yeah, so one of the big stories of the week and in fact, two big stories. Do you want to summarise this for us, Paul? Well, uh, the first I heard of it was when uh, my wife told me the WhatsApp was down and I cheered <laughs> because uh, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with that platform where I, I hate it more than I love it. But um, the fact that it was down was not sort of worrying me too much. But then obviously this was suddenly headline news and it was the, the fact that Facebook was out for was it six hours, I think. I think it was um, seven in the end. Was it seven hours? It was a and- long chunk of time. A long chunk of time. But the basic issue was that Facebook have built most of Facebook's infrastructure on Facebook itself. So when that platform goes over for one reason or another, and we're still not entirely sure what the the issue was, it means that they disconnected it from the entire internet, seemingly. And um, it was exacerbated by the fact that everything i.e. the door locking systems and things like that, uh, the badge recognition service at their door is also hosted on Facebook. So the people that needed to fix the issue couldn't even get into the building. So anyway, I mean, a long story short, Mark Zuckerberg and the the Facebook team apologised on Twitter, which is quite funny in itself, and Facebook came back up. My initial reaction was, well, you know, I, I, I don't tend to use Facebook as much as I used to. I don't necessarily like using uh, WhatsApp. I didn't miss Instagram for those seven hours. So, you know, what's the fuss about? But then, of course, you look at the wider implications to people that run their small businesses off of uh, Facebook or charities and other organisations that have a massive reliance on it as a platform. And then you start to, to sort of figure out that there are some potential huge losses here, both for Facebook in a financial way, but also for the organizations that are so heavily reliant on it and i think where we come out at is probably the this point about facebook and google in particular as two massive organizations that suddenly have so much power over so much of the internet sitting in silicon valley and probably what we should look at is this being a huge wake-up call for everyone to, to look at what does this mean for the future of the the web and how we have come to to know it and how do we start to wrestle some of that back from, from the organisation? But I know, Zoe, you think this is probably a step too far for Facebook to come back from. I do. I think there have been so many negative stories now and these two things happening very close together. The whistleblower, which we're going to talk more about in a moment, uh, appearing in front of Congress 
And then also this outage for a very, very long amount of time, isn't it, has made people realise how dependent they are, not just on Facebook, but also the other products that it owns, Instagram and and WhatsApp, and and how our whole lives and means of transacting and commerce and all sorts of things are are, are very much intertwined with with that. So absolutely, I mean, I feel the only way from here is that they are going to get regulated. I think that government in a lot of countries is is starting to get very concerned about this. Certainly in the US, they seem particularly worried about this at, at the moment. And it's interesting to see some of the support building for action being taken uh, from what I've heard in the news. So absolutely, I, I, I think that Facebook as we know it is not going to be the Facebook of the future. Yeah, it's coupled with the Francis Haugen yeah, so obviously Frances has uh, appeared in front of Congress and she has talked, I think, very sort of devastatingly and very sort of comprehensively about how Facebook has put profit above safety uh, from what she's seen. Uh, and some really sort of worrying examples. For instance, she said that Facebook has reversed changes to its algorithm once the 2020 president's election was over. They allowed information to spread on the platform, she alleges. And time and again, from her perspective, she thinks that they have put profit ahead of safety. And of course, we've all seen the, the story that started uh, a few weeks ago about the research which Instagram did into harmful content, uh, which which wasn't shared more, more widely. And it doesn't appear as if action for it was, was taken on that. And it's interesting also to see what she's saying about Mark Zuckerberg. And she said that she, she doesn't think he set out to make it a, a, a platform where harm was caused or where hate was shared. But he has allowed these choices to be made. And the unintended consequences of those have been very serious for a lot of people. So it comes back down to strength of leadership. Yeah, yeah. I think that is one of the key things that emerges from this story and also what the values of Facebook as a platform are and whether they are genuinely compatible with the organisations that they use and whether you're a charity, whether you're a coffee shop, whether you're a big public sector body. People have described this as Facebook's British American tobacco moment, and it really is. Mm. This season is shaping up to be a great one, and we have some fantastic guests lined up. So if there's someone that you'd like to hear from, we may struggle with Mark Zuckerberg, but do let us know who you'd like to hear from. Yeah, I think it's unlikely we're going to get him on the podcast, especially given what we've just said about Facebook. Especially now we've dissed him. Now for our conversation with Ursula Dalton that we recorded last month. We didn't give Ursula a proper introduction on the day, so here is what you need to know about her. Ursula brings together a cohesive blend of strategic, commercial, operational and technology capabilities from over 20 years of cross-sector exposure to shape, execute and implement revolutionary technology-driven visions. She joined the British Heart Foundation in March 2016 and was appointed as the first Chief Technology Officer for the charity in May 2019. 
She has led digital and technology transformation across the organisation and is responsible for delivering the BHF's technology strategy in support of its charitable objectives, with a focus on how technology can best support research and innovation, help people affected by heart and circulatory disease, and drive income growth across the BHF's commercial, retail and fundraising offerings. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Ursula, welcome to Starts at the Top. Thank you very much for inviting me, Zoe. We're so pleased to have you here. And we know there's lots of exciting things that you've got going on at British Heart Foundation that you're going to be sharing with us today. And I know you've also been doing some really interesting work on the next stage of your digital transformation journey too. Um, Would you be able to briefly set the scene for us all about what's been happening over the pandemic digitally? I can indeed. I mean, if it would help, I will give quickly give you a brief introduction to the BHF British Heart Foundation as well. So um, BHF was formed in 1961 by a group of medics uh, because that year over half of all UK deaths were from heart and circulatory diseases. So I mentioned 1961. So we actually are celebrating our 60th birthday this year. So in the past 60 years, we have actually uh, awarded a total of 1.6 billion sterling pounds in research grants, which has immensely contributed to research into three main areas like heart disease, circulatory diseases, and their risk factors. So all the work we do, everything we do is to generate that income so we can provide those grants for the heart research that we are doing. So that, that's where the whole digital transformation is so important to us, especially in the past um, 18 months since the pandemic. We have found out charities such as ours who are very reliant on the retail sector, the high street, the physical shops and the physical fundraising activities, everybody had to pivot to that. How can we do this in a digital manner? How can we really create this income, generate this income digitally? So digital transformation has been one of those key activities for us in the past 18 months. So I can carry on with lots of details, Zoe. I'll let you actually ask me the questions and I'll really bring all the exciting things we've been doing to life in our discussion now. Oh, brilliant. Well, we're really keen to hear more. Uh, And when we last spoke a few weeks ago, you talked about some of the work that you and your team are doing around data. And I know data is going to be a bit of a theme of our discussion today. So we'd, we'd love to hear a bit more about the work that's been going on in that area. Definitely. Um, I mean, in the current world, using the right data to make informed decisions is so key. Mainly business decisions that are based on the insight we have obtained from really good quality data. So I think data gives us raw material that we can use to generate insight, for example, like the air pollution campaign. So when we were going into the pandemic, we were running this air pollution campaign. And um, so how much support and the geography locations gives us such rich insight. So that data will help us build even better campaigns in future as we generate intelligence to tell us which messages are the most effective in generating support. So that's one area for us where we are really focusing on data. 
the other areas we were talking a few weeks ago is very much around that. How do we support our customers? How do we really support everybody who interacts with the BHF, whether they come to our shops or whether they take part in one of the fundraising activities or visit our website? How do we really give them that seamless, that consistent interaction with us and the information they need? That all comes down to how well we use our data. Yeah, definitely. And it's great to hear about all the thinking that's going on in in this British Heart Foundation. And the reason why I wanted to just pause and focus on this point a little more is I feel like as a sector, we're starting to talk about data driven decisions more, but I'm not sure that the term is as widely understood yet as it could be. Uh, Are you able to share a bit more about your take on what uh, a data driven decision is and what you need in place to make a really good data driven decision? Definitely. I think we need the that right quality data because data is the raw material we capture, like the example I was using, for example, that like the air pollution campaign. So we have to make sure we have mechanisms to capture that right data and, and that is captured. It, it, from a technology's point of view, into the right platforms. And I'm going to really go down the technology's view now, um, Zoe, because like at the BHF, we do capture the data, we do capture the right data, but then we store it in number of platforms. Uh, and then for us to get the insight to make the right, the business decisions we want, we can't actually bring that data together to formulate that story we need. So that's where we mean by the insights. Like let's get that quality data, the right data, and then build the story, build the insights so we can make informed decisions. That's what we are trying to do. And uh, my understanding is that's what a lot of organizations are trying to do. But um, doing it is the challenge. How do we really bring this siloed data different platforms together and actually get the uh, the story this data tells us and understand the story as well. I guess the um, the important thing there is it's getting the data all in one place is you know, technologically there's an answer to that. Putting it putting a layer over the top that means that you can read that data there's a technology answer to that. So that would seem fairly straightforward. The next bit is the decision-making itself and getting the the culture of data-led decision-making through the business. So can you tell us a little bit more about where you feel that you are with that? You know, are are you a lone lone voice in saying that you need to do this within the organisation or are you already on that journey as a leadership team? Yeah, as a leadership team, I have to say I'm really fortunate we are on this journey together. So as a BHF executive team, we, we have identified this BHF-wide data strategy, for example, having that consistent holistic data strategy for the organization is really important because we have a big retail function, a fundraising function, like uh, the healthcare, the research, all of them. We have been capturing this data separately. We have been making the different decisions but we have been we've started to really focus in let's get this holistic view so as a leadership team it's number one it's really a high priority for us let's get the data right so we make we can make those informed decisions and and it's a it's something that's really driven by us as well does that answer your question Paul 
Yeah, I think so. I was just thinking about um, also, you know, how that then trickles down through the organisation, I guess, and, and that, you know, everyone making different, the, the micro decisions that we take day to day often are done through gut instinct or through assumption and, and things like that. So making that data available to everyone within the organisation so that sharper decisions are made by everyone throughout Agree. the uh, agree. So here we are actually t approaching this from a number of angles. As you mentioned, there's the technology side and then there's the cultural side. And they see side where we have to put the right processes, the right operating models in place as well. So the, the leadership, the culture, the right the processes, the operating models, and of course, the technology. And, uh, and that's something we're very much looking at as part of the overarching data strategy. How do we get all of these things right for us? So for a starter, that I'm a co-sponsor for the BHF data strategy. And so it is very much owned by the executive group at the BHF. And we are also looking at um, how do we have this governing body so we can oversee all these different activities, improvement activities that's going across the organization in the various functions. So there's that oversight given by a team of specialists within the organization. So we are putting that structure and the framework in place as well. And at the same time, there are a number of activities that's going on at different levels. How do we actually create that, like educate people, show the importance of like data-driven decision-making, the importance of data? Because I think every organization now got to be very much of a data-driven organization because that that's what brings value for us. So, so we're encouraging all our employees saying everything, every job they do is like, focus on data. So it's easy to use the word data very you know, <laughs> generously. It's also that insight led the metrics, the dashboards, because I think it's, it comes in a number of formats and that's what we are doing. It's, it's showing them. It's nothing new. It's something you do always, but just bring it to the surface a bit more. And, and just one more question on, on this for me, I think. The, um, the interesting thing, I used to work in a, a big accountancy firm, and when they started getting interested in what they could do around data-driven decisions, and they started to surface some of the data, it brought up just as many opportunities as it did windows into problems and hurdles or things that were happening within the organisation that they weren't aware of, but the data was starting to shine through. Are there any examples of um, real lessons that you've learned that you've been able to put straight into action because you've you've managed to, to surface something that you didn't really know was happening? Of course, de definitely. I think we are more or less doing that every day at the moment because um, I, I'm really, especially from a technology perspective, I'm very much pushing my teams, like uh, the operational teams for a starter, to take that data-driven, that decision-making culture. So we are very much like operationally looking at saying, okay, uh, for example, if I look at the uh, utilization of uh, certain equipment to various utilization, you know, stats that we get given, the teams are making such informed decisions based on the, uh, all that data that they are getting. And this is something we didn't focus much before. Well, now I can see it's really coming to the surface. We are saying, get the stats, get, get that inside, get, get 
let's make the decisions based on the data we the stats we have so operationally i see my teams on a daily basis improving how they do it given the data that's put in front of us and uh, there's been a number of times we've actually found out things saying, oh, that's a surprise. We didn't know that we are doing it. Um, and uh, some of those are a bit sensitive, so I won't actually share it with you publicly, Paul, because it's, it, it's I think every organization has, I think. We could be performing a bit better. We can be much more efficient. And I think that's that's something we're coming across on a daily basis. Excellent. No, I won't ask you to go through the uh, skeletons <laughs> in the closet. Don't you worry. You know, we all got those in our organisations, don't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can I ask just for charities who are earlier on in the journey, because it sounds like you've put so much work into all of this and everyone's on the same page with it, which is really great. Uh, for charities who are perhaps earlier on, perhaps if they've got a bit more of a traditional board and they really want to make more data-driven decisions, but they're not sure how to get started or how to change that culture to make it happen. Do you have any advice for them? I think so. What I can do is like uh, like the journey we have been and the lessons we, we've learned as well, because the moment we say data, we always think, Oh, it is actually such a huge thing. We we have to bring in a bunch of highly paid consultants, get them to write a data strategy, give us all these guidance and all those things. And it's taken as it has to be really this strategy, this top-down thing. I think it has to be approached by all different angles. It's not one way or the other. So that's that's something. I really realized at the BHF as well, show the importance of those data-led decision-making, the incremental data-led decision-making for those operational teams that how it can add value on a day-to-day basis because by acknowledging that, you're automatically creating that culture in the organization saying, think that data-led you know thinking culture and and it doesn't have to necessarily always come from the top and it doesn't have to be always a, this is a strategy you have to do it I think people just got to respect we have to make informed decisions based on that insight we get um, at the same time you do need that strategy as well. So you you got to have that strategy so you know that direction of travel. So that work needs to be done as well. Uh, So that's where from the charities, I'm always saying, you don't have to wait till everything's perfect for you to get started. Start small, take baby steps, do that incremental improvements whilst you are looking at that direction of travel using the strategy as well and that's the approach we've taken and that incremental change can be so powerful isn't it it's often a very underrated part of the whole transformation journey definitely so that's one of the things that we tend to sometimes um, not really give that importance we always say transformation it's huge it has to be this huge initiative actually there's those incremental improvements are so important as well absolutely completely with you on that um moving on to an area that's very closely related to data uh, i know you and your team have been doing some work around personalization as well so can you tell us a bit more about what you've been doing 
Yes, uh, we, we've just started this uh, initiative, actually, program of work on um, actually our customer journeys and how do we really give our customers that personalized you know, customer experience. Because, um, as I mentioned earlier, we, we capture data in various at various stages of a customer journey, you know, their end-to-end customer journey, and that from a technology, from a systems point of view, that data is stored in a number of different places. So when the same customer interacts with us at different points, whether it's to raise funds with us, take part in some campaign or or give some donations to our uh, shops and all those things, we don't have that consistency in the way we interact with them. So what we've really focused on doing, especially in the last year, is okay, how do we get that integrated platforms to bring that data together? And I think Paul mentioned earlier that that technology side, that's something we can do. Then focusing on the operating model, how do we really interact with these customers, that journeys and all that, because there's the technology, there's the data, and then there's the way we interact with them. Uh, So we're doing this massive piece of work, this program on looking at that whole customer data platforms to the MarTech stack. And the outcome we want is that we want to give the personalized experience with anybody who interacts with the BHF. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing how all this progresses because we've just started this work and um, it's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And again, coming back to my example of a charity, perhaps who's a bit more traditional, or maybe they're on a, a bit of a budget. How would you advise charities who really want to move forward with personalization, but perhaps they're not quite at the stage that you guys are already at? We all know technology is costly. <laughs> it's a it's a given. But then it's actually looking at it quite smartly. You have the opportunities to really interact with your tech partners, identify opportunities to get that best value solutions because uh, you don't have to have the best, most expensive technology solution. Um, Something I've learned is actually um, interacting with our tech partners uh, and explaining the actual business problem and working with them. You figure out what's the most value added solution that is fit, you know, that is right for your organization, that's fit for purpose as well as fits your budget. that's the key thing. It's it's working with them to find out actually how can you get the maximum value product and how can you actually implement it in the you know best possible way and the most cheapest way as well. But make sure it's right. Um, in my experience, um, in the technology partners we work with, they've been more than generous. They've really helped us when we've asked the questions. They've helped helped us, and I'm sure. Uh, they would do with all the charities as well because society is such now that they are really keen to help because they want to actually do that tech for good activities Um, and and I think there's so much of opportunity there. Thank you and uh, one of the reasons why I'm really keen to, to, to pick up on your answer there is I know in our conversation together a few weeks ago we talked about some of those shared challenges between the charity sector and the, the corporate world and I know between us all we've, we've got some experience in, in, in both camps 
And in a situation now, as we come gradually out of the pandemic, all of us have even more dependency on technology as charities. Uh, and that partnering with those companies is going to be really key, what that looks like and how people work together. Do you have any thoughts on those shared challenges and, and how people can work effectively together with their suppliers? Definitely. I mean, um, like we need to provide digital products and services with a high quality of customer experience, uh, regardless of the sector. So I mean, that, that's a key. And I always say uh, technology is technology, regardless of the sector. So that's, that's one key thing. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the partners are very keen to work with us um, because you probably notice I use the word partner than a supplier because I think that's a big differentiator because in the past we've always taken that traditional approach. We 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 are the customer, we are buying this off you and you're the supplier. And in that, that's a very transactional relationship. And most of the time, it's very much like, what can I get out of this? It's not a two-way interaction. Um, and I think that's changed a lot, very much to a partnership. That's where it's it's common. I talk to different like commercial uh, organizations and you know, they're all we're all in this together because of the digital need, and every organization basically faces the same challenges. I think people want to partner with you, and people want to really figure out that problem to how to resolve the problem together. And um, they set the pride as well by actually achieving something together because they want to be seen to be doing something good, as I mentioned earlier. So it's definitely partnerships is a way to go and working together, coming to that common solution, uh, which is a win-win for both parties. It definitely is. And I think what you've described there really well in that partnership model that you've got with tech partners is about where you've got a shared goals and shared values and a shared understanding of the challenges that, that you as the client are facing is there anything that you would recommend then to other charities about how to do due diligence on shared values? Because that's quite a hard thing to do, isn't it, in procurement? And I say that as someone who sat on both sides of the table. Indeed, it is. Um, I mean, one thing that we always say is before we even get to a procurement, or we we need to have a clear vision of what successful implement implementation will deliver. And stay focused on that. Because I think that, that's another key thing, isn't it? We sometimes say, we need to go get a technology solution. We need a system. And, and then the business are trying to figure out and articulate what they might need. So, so one of the key things that we always do is like, let's, let's really us understand what is our vision? What does success look like? And what would this implementation will deliver for us? Because that helps us keep focused. That's, that's way before we start the procurement activities. Then we have to balance getting the stakeholders involved as well, because it's not something just the tech teams and uh, uh, supplier stroke partner nowadays do. So I always say it's a triangular relationship between the business, the te technology teams and the partner, the implementation partner, because you cannot deliver these solutions alone. So, so to your point, um, uh, Zoe, it's like before procurement starts, it's very much having that clear vision, really figuring out what success would 
look like and agreeing that you know this is how what we want to achieve from this uh, and have that focus and then only start the procurement discussions and start the procurement process you have to do that together with the business it's not one party who owns it yeah absolutely and it's really tempting isn't it to, to skip that stage but it's well worth the investment of time isn't it Definitely, yes. And uh, especially like uh, the personalization discussion we were having before and this uh, uh, program of work we've started, we invested a fair bit of time. We worked with um, uh, one of our partners to truly understand that business need. How, how are we actually collectively working with the business to really get them to understand what success would look like as well? So th- that's so important. I guess these the big vendors as well that are out there selling these technologies are all looking for case studies, particularly at the moment where we're all sort of shifting the way that we do work. Um, you can think of several big fam- big household names in technology that will be bashing down the door, I would imagine, of, of charities big and small just to say, are we working to, to provide a solution to, to, for example, you know, the amount of people that have had to suddenly start working from home or, or in, in different remote locations? You're so right, uh, Paul. I think that that's one of those things that as charities, sometimes we're so hesitant to reach out to these tech firms and ask them that question, saying, do you mind helping us? Uh, uh, Because we feel like actually, if we start that discussion, if we start that conversation, we'll have to part with a lot of money. Not necessarily. That's where we kind of restrain by saying, oh, if we start this conversation, that means we have to spend, you know, thousands of hundreds of thousands of pounds. And I'm saying, no, it doesn't hurt to actually go have that conversation because quite often, to your point, they will help us. They will really help us understand what we need to and show us the that best way to get to get to the solution as well. Yeah, absolutely. And when we last spoke, you mentioned that you had a partnership with Microsoft, where some of these kind of philosophies about how best to work together really came into play. Can you tell everyone a bit more about that? Uh, of course, I can. I mean, um, BHF has a great strategic partnership with Microsoft and we are very proud of that because uh, uh, I'm sure I can openly tell this about Microsoft Tech to Inspire Action. uh, Sorry, the program has been very much supported by Microsoft and they have their team who are very dedicated to the charity sector who are really keen to support the charities and and I know they proactively reach out to the charities saying how can we help. Um, I think in Lots of times uh, what I've noticed with Microsoft is they are absolutely willing to help us, very willing to help us. But we got to know what actually questions to ask them as well, because because we are the experts in our field. They, They are the experts in the tech world. So that's something we've worked with Microsoft. So they come and help us. They run a lot of workshops. They show us, myself and the team, where can we uh, get the best synergies from the investments we've made with them. Uh, So it's not just us buying the products from them. They really show us how we can actually get the maximum. And and they're properly helping us with these personalization activities, you know, the data platforms as well. So I think... As I mentioned to Paul earlier, it's reaching out to them, asking them, because my experience, 
they've gone out of their way to help uh, and um, and we wouldn't be able to do what we are doing at the moment without their help so um, it's a uh, I, I can give kudos to Microsoft on that because they've been really supportive to us that's that's great to hear a really encouraging story about a, a, a partnership with um with a tech company and is there anything that you would suggest to charities who might be looking to develop um a, a really good partnership in in that area where they might want to have perhaps a bit more of that value add and really working together effectively around those additional areas of support I think the key thing is it's making sure that uh, when you have the conversations with these tech partners, very much having that first the business conversation. It's not that I want uh, I want a technical solution. Here you go. Don't ask me any other questions. Just give me the technical solution. Um, then that, that's a difference. Um, when we have the conversations, we always say. We have a business challenge. We have a business need here. The truth is, we don't know what technology we might need, but we need to solve this business problem. So very much taking that step back and looking at it from uh, that outcomes, what, what, what value uh, are we trying to really get here point of view. Um, th- that's the key thing for any charity, um, not thinking very that in that little blinkered manner saying we ha- we need to get a technical solution here let's go buy something off the shelf or with a, you know from one of our tech companies think take a step back look at what are we trying to achieve as a business and then work with these companies to say this is what we're trying to achieve because some of it may be resolved by the platform, the technical solution, but quite a lot of it is actually the way you work, the different processes and how you implement the business change, you know, capabilities. It's that whole package that you have to look at, not not just the technology um, uh, and the technical solution. Yeah, absolutely. I'm completely on board with that. Uh, So what lies ahead for you at British Heart Foundation? It sounds like you're right in the thick of doing all these these different, very exciting projects and it's taking you in a a really brilliant new direction. Um, What do you see being your key digital priorities over the next 12 months? Yes, making us this amazing digital charity organization because what we want to be doing is because we have this big initiative around um, getting more into the online retail area because it's like yes we have our char- you know, shops uh, out there but we want really get into that uh, online retail market much more uh, and do those various online fundraising activities um, it's giving our customers the options because I think that's what the pandemic has brought us giving the customer and giving anybody who interacts with the organization the option saying they can interact with us uh, in person face to face if they want to but if they want to they can interact with us digitally as well uh, it's the various ways that they can interact with us and that's what we want to be uh, in the coming few months saying we provide that service uh, regardless of how they want to interact with us in that very customer centric manner as well and, and we know lots of people want to interact with us now digitally. So that, that's going to be the focus. And that is our focus. Offering people that 
choice is is so key isn't it it's I mean it's something I think that things organizations like banks have probably known for for years Definitely. I mean, we were talking about uh, different payment options, like, you know, when you're you're fundraising, because that's another huge area we have to look at, because as you say, those choices, people want to pay in different ways, like we're talking about digital wallets and all those things. I think it's a really exciting time um, and charities should be really going for it. Definitely. And and there's a real potential there to, to shift the model, isn't there, with, with the sort of traditional model of how charities interact with the, the public and, and, and donors and, and vice versa. De- definitely. So that's why I think we are in this really, I mean, as a charity, we are in this uh, stage where so many opportunities and we just got to grab them Uh, and yes you have to be secure you have to really make sure you know you're compliant and all those things because with going that very digital you have to really bring all that to the surface as well as you very well know and this is an area you focus on as well isn't it and uh, but it's it's just say be a bit daring you know it's like positive disruption is it's really exciting because that's how we will move forward. Can I just ask on on that um, on that point and how you sort of drive that that home? Digital transformation is a journey for everyone within the organisation, and, and your customers as well need to understand that. But how can you give us a couple of examples of how you're bringing that to life for people within British Art Foundation? So not leaving them behind. We come keep, come back to this stat all the time that 70% of digital transformation projects fail because people don't feel bought in. So how are you engaging everybody else, especially at this time when everyone's remote working? I mean, um, we always say uh, it's like everybody has to be a fundraiser and everybody has to really think of innovation as something they do, uh, you know, on a day-to-day basis. So I actually, when we went into the pandemic last year, one of the key things I did was I created a technology advisory group for the uh, British Art Foundation. That is bringing in a number of industry, like experts, like tech experts um, to form this um, uh, group where they can advise us uh, as an organization how we can actually take on this digital journey and all the the transformation, all these innovations that we want really come up with. Uh, And that group uh, meets on a regular basis. So what we have is we have our teams, the fundraising teams, my tech teams, all of them come up with these amazing ideas uh, and uh, they come and present these ideas and, and they get all the support a number of times this uh, technology advisory group have said they've got so excited with the ideas that's been presented they said why don't wait till the next um, meeting that that's scheduled uh, why not we have some mini workshops and and they're so excited to support the teams I think that naturally generates that passion the excitement in the organization saying it's not just Internally, we've got these experts from like the, we've got from the likes of Amazon, Microsoft, like we've even got Gartner in there, like and then like Barclays Bank, all of them. So number of different experts who come come in to support. It's it's just showing that they said um, us as a tech. The executive group and uh, the technology function, because I've got my executive group colleagues in that um, in those meetings as well. It's it's like 
everybody's bought into it uh, and, and they get the encouragement to innovate even more then. Excellent. Good to hear everyone's working together. As, as the title of the podcast says, starts at the top, but you can't forget everyone uh, definitely, that layer. Definitely, Paul. And, and that group is one of those times we are all definitely working together. Um, and one last final question for me. Um, digital challenges coming up in the next 12 months. What, what are the big things that you see on the horizon, not just for the British Heart Foundation, but for, for everyone, um, you know, given, given the context of the world we live in now and some of the big changes that are pushing through? What's, what's the big thing that you, well, one big thing that you think might be on the horizon for everyone? I mean, from a digital point of view, I think when we talk about everything is like data and everything is accessible uh, online, the biggest concern I always have is like that is, of course, the safety, the data, you know, various data breaches. I think that's a given, isn't it? So when we talk about the horizon, we have to always say, Yes, we always think of, oh, how can we get even better? But we have to always say, don't forget that. We have to get better with our safety, the security side. We have to make sure that the data we capture, the, the information we store is very secure as well. So that, that's something that's always at the forefront for me um, because uh, when we're looking at the horizon. Um, I think it's an exciting time. Um, Personalization is really key. That's something I see, uh, not just charity sector, even the big organizations uh, that one would think are really good at this. They are trying to improve that even more. That's something I've definitely seen. Um, And uh, it's that, of course, we're talking about the hybrid way of working. Um, So it's, it's... how do we really make sure that our employees actually have the experience, the working experience, because a hybrid way of working also brings in that challenges. How do we really make sure we get our employees to work and you know use our internal digital products better um, and, and then provide that customer experience? I mean, there are two key things, two, three key things I can think of at the moment. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Ursula, it's just been a joy to talk to you. And it's fantastic to hear about the exciting work that you're all doing over at British Art Foundation uh, and also the way everyone's beginning to really come together behind those uh, shared aims, which is is really heartening. And, and hopefully other charities who may be a little bit earlier on uh, will hear about this and they'll be encouraged by what, what you've achieved. Thank you very much, Zoe. Well, we couldn't do any of this alone. We we can, we are succe- succeeding here only because we're partnering with some amazing, amazing companies, and uh, all our teams are working together. So th- that that's where it's exciting. And uh, again, Zoe and Paul, thank you very much for inviting me. And I'm sure we'll continue to have many conversations um, offline as well. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to Ursula for a fantastic chat and her enthusiasm was uh, clear to all of us, I think. Really, really loved uh, that chat. Um, One thing we spoke off mic about right at the end and I thought was just worth mentioning here was the way that organisations, particularly those with big digital challenges, should approach big vendors like Microsoft. I know we discussed Microsoft quite a lot in, in that interview. My thought on this is that 
Microsoft really do know their technology, but they don't always understand how to apply it to the best effect. They sort of take this as a square box. It feels a square hole approach rather than how can we make that square box fit into the somewhat circular hole we have over here, which is probably more um, recognizable to us who have worked in in big organizations or smaller organizations before. So it's really vital that as an organization, you understand your power here. The products only fit better, improve more rapidly add the features that you badly need through use case design and challenges that you present to organizations like Microsoft. So they need you as much as you need them. So going into conversations and discussions with those organizations, bringing that power to the table right from the start is going to get you a long way. Zoe, what were your takeaways? Well, I'd agree with what you just said, Paul. I think whether you're working with a one-person website developer or whether you're working with a big global tech company like Microsoft, always treat it as a partnership. Uh, One of my mantras with the charities that we work with is we work with, not for. Uh, And I think that charities get a lot more out of it that way, to be honest. So absolutely, always have open conversations on either side, be frank with each other, talk to people about your business outcomes as much as your digital outcomes, share with them what you're you're worried about. And if you have that high quality of, of conversation and that openness and honesty on both sides, then you'll absolutely have much more impact and get a better result uh, all, all round. So I would really encourage anyone who's working with any kind of supplier to approach the collaboration. And it should be a collaboration at the end of the day in that peer-to-peer spirit. Excellent. And we should say here that if anybody that we've interviewed on the podcast already uh, has tackled an issue or has spoken to us about an issue that you're tackling yourself, then please do get in touch. We'd be more than happy to do some of that peer-to-peer connection on your behalf and get you speaking to each other. That would be a really nice outcome of the podcast to think that we created a little group of leaders who were chatting away to each other about their issues and challenges. So thank you for listening to episode one of season four. We'll be back next week with another episode, but please bear with us if we slip a few days. We've both got a lot on at the moment and all sorts of things going on within our our daily lives. So we will endeavour to get there as quickly as we can. Stay tuned to our social channels and we'll be sure to shout about when the next episode is going to appear. As usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel that you will do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at at starts at the top one. That's at starts at the top one. And you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time.